In the previous lesson, we discussed the basic principle that everything that happens is for the good. Based on the fact that everything that happens is by divine providence, it's not just a result of nature. There's no such thing as nature is responsible for this happening. But everything that happens is because God wanted it to happen. Otherwise, it couldn't take place. Therefore, everything that happens has a divine purpose. And being that God is the epitome of goodness, therefore, everything that happens, its purpose is ultimately for the good. And this is discussed in Chassidic teachings at length, because the more we understand the connection between God and the world, how they're really one, the more we understand the oneness between nature and God, and every event in God, the more we can understand how everything is ultimately good. However, there are still people that would ask, there are certain things that happen in life that is just inconceivable that it's good. You just don't see it. There's no way you can possibly see it. How do you explain that? In the story of Yerba Kiva, which we mentioned in the previous lesson, in the story of Nochemish Gamzu, true, a few days later, it was seen very clearly how it was for the good. But there are certain times where you just don't see any connection. In fact, it seems to be just the opposite, where somebody does something nice, does something pleasant, a good deed, and a short while later he's suffering because of it. How can this be explained? One of the ways to explain this is with a story that we find in the Medrash, about one of the scholars by the name of Yeshua ben Levi met up with Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. And he begged him that he would like to come along with him on one of his journeys to see how he operates, what he does during the day. Eliyahu Hanavi refused to take him along. And he said because he won't understand what he's doing, his understanding and vision is limited, and therefore he'll just be full of questions and he can't have him come along. Rabbi Shur ben Levi nevertheless begged and pleaded and the deal was he wouldn't ask any questions. And as soon as he begins to ask him questions, they'll separate. So he went along with Elio Hanavi and there were four incidents that happened. One incident was that as they were traveling towards the evening they came towards, they came to pass by this old shaky hut there was an older couple sitting outside a man and a woman poor people obviously and when they saw the travelers they jumped up and were very excited to take them into the house offer them a place to sleep offer them some food the truth was that the accommodations were not so great because they couldn't have didn't have too much to offer but they did the best in their situation to observe the mitzvah of Orchim to bring guests into your home and to make them comfortable to the best of their ability. When they left, after they went out of the house, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi sees that Eliyahu Navi is praying. What is he praying for? This older couple had a cow. And the cow was the most valuable possession that they had because this cow 
they sold the milk and that's how they had an income. So he prayed that the cow should die. And when he heard that, he was shocked. These people were so nice, so pleasant, so warm. What did they deserve that the cow should die? But of course he wasn't going to ask any questions. That was the deal. They wandered together and they were talking, but Elio Anavi did not offer any explanation for what happened. Towards the evening, they came to a beautiful mansion. Nobody offered to uh, take them in, so they asked permission from the owner of the house, a very rich man, whether we can sleep here overnight. Wasn't too excited about the idea, but he said, okay. Nevertheless, he was very cold to them, didn't offer them any food, hardly said a word to them, and they spent the night in this person's house. Again, when they leave the house, he notices that Elio Anavi is praying again. And what is he praying this time? He's asking God that there's a wall in this rich man's house which is cracked and weak. So he's praying to God that this wall should be restored to its original strength, should be strong and solid. And he could understand this. Here's a person who is a miser, wasn't nice to them at all, and he's praying yet for him that the wall which is cracked should become solid and strong. But again, no questions allowed. They eventually came in their travels to a city, which is a beautiful city. The shoe was a beautiful shoe. The walls were designed beautifully. The benches were beautiful. And if Rabbi Shub and Lady figured in this town, we're probably going to have an easy time. But that's not the way it was. The people were very not nice. The prayers were over. Nobody approached them to ask them if they have where to be, what to eat, where to stay. And they had to sleep over, hungry, in the shul overnight just to sleep on the benches. In the morning, when they were ready to leave, Elio Navi blessed the people in the city and said they should all become leaders of the city. He was very puzzled. Why should he bless them? And finally, the fourth incident was after that, they came to another city, which the shoe was not so beautiful. Obviously, it wasn't as wealthy of a community as the first, but the people were very nice, very warm, very kind. They did everything to make them comfortable. And before he left that city, he said to them, May God help that only one of you become a leader. At this point, his curiosity was bursting and he just said to Elionavi, please explain to me, I know that this is, my deal is over, I have to leave, but just explain to me what happened. And he explained to him that the first couple that they met, the older couple, they were wonderful people, they had a tremendous act of kindness, but on that day, that day was designated for the woman to pass away. That was the last day of her life. And she was given this opportunity to perform a mitzvah. And in the merit of the mitzvah of charity that she performed, I prayed that the cow, which meant so much to them, it was their source of income, it was so precious to them, the cow should die, and on account of that, she should have more years to live. So it was really a blessing for them. The house of the miser, in that wall, there was a very, very big treasure buried in the wall. And the wall was cracking, and the wall was weak, 
And in no time that wall would fall down and break. But because he was a miser, and because he dealt in such a not nice way, I pray that the wall should become strong again, and he shouldn't be able to benefit from the treasure which is hidden in that wall. What about the people in the city? said, well, when I prayed for them, and I said they should all become leaders in the city, that wasn't a blessing. That's the opposite of a blessing. The most destructive thing that can happen in a city is when everybody in the city become leaders. The other city where the people were nice, which is a very warm community, there I blessed them that only one of them should become a leader, and that's truly a blessing. Even though it appeared to you that it's the opposite. So that's basically the way it is with everything in life. When we realize that what we know about ourselves and about others is only one part of a big, big puzzle with many pieces. And therefore, when you take one piece of a 5,000-piece puzzle, it doesn't make any sense. The form, the shape, doesn't look like anything, it doesn't lead to anything, but that's because there's only one piece of a 5,000-piece puzzle. Once you have the other 4,999 pieces, and then you add this one, everything falls into place, and you see exactly how it fits in. So to realize that we don't have the whole picture, not about ourselves, about what happened before in our lives, what will happen later in our lives, with others, with our community, with our parents, and therefore our vision is very limited, and that's why we don't understand most of the things we see. However, the people that asked, fine, that you can say about something which happens in a person's life, that eventually it'll lead to something good and we can't see it. What about a person who's, God forbid, ill for life, chronically ill? Or, God forbid, a person who something happens to him and his life ends? What could you say in that case? How can you say it leads to something good when his life is over? And of course the answer is, if one believes only in this physical world, the question is a good question. But one of the basic principles of the 13 principles of belief of the Jew is that there's more than this world. There's an afterworld. There's Olam Haba, which is the world that comes after this world where the soul goes when it leaves the body. And that's not the end either. After that, the soul descends and comes back down to the physical world, goes back into its original body, when there will be resurrection of the dead through Mashiach. And that is an eternal life. So the life doesn't end over here. And therefore, it could be that here there is suffering, but the reward and the good that's supposed to come out of it will be in Olam Haba, in the future life. In fact, the Ramban one of the commentaries on the Torah states that if a person, God forbid, would suffer like Eof, like Job, for a period of 70 years, imagine experiencing Job's sufferings not for one day and not for one year, but for 70 consecutive years. The Ramban writes that this is insignificant compared to the suffering that the soul feels when it goes through it's suffering in Gehenna, which is after the soul leaves this world and has to go through a cleansing period and a correction, which are the punishments the soul gets. It's not God's bit of punishment just to hurt. It's a process of refinement, process of correction. But it's a painful process. So the pain and the suffering that the soul experiences is far greater 
to the extent that 70 consecutive years of Job's suffering in this world is insignificant to one moment of suffering in that world. And the same thing with pleasure. All the pleasure a person can experience in this world is insignificant to one moment of pleasure in that world. So therefore it could be that a person should be suffering in this world, but by that happening to him, this is substituting much more suffering which could have been in the future world. The analogy which is given to this is if we observe the sun, the sun could be moving thousands of miles in the sky, but down here if you look at the wall, the shade only moved one inch. So one inch of movement over here is equivalent to thousands of miles movement over there. The reflection of thousands of miles movement over there. So one moment of suffering in this physical world will make up for thousands of times more in the spiritual world and in the future world. So it could be that the suffering the person is going through now was ultimately for the good, but not you don't see it in this physical world, you will see it in the spiritual world, or you'll see it when Mashiach comes. And the same thing with reward. When the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was arrested in Russia for spreading Judaism, unfortunately the ones that arrested him were Jewish people, Jewish communists, which were known as the Yevsektia, Jewish communists whose goal in life was to undermine and to uproot every trace of traditional Judaism. And they were demanding of the Rebbe and threatening him that he should give out information where the underground yeshivas are, where the underground cheder is, where the underground kosher meat is being prepared, and so on and so forth. And he wouldn't give any information. Finally, the guy pulled out a gun, pointed it to his head, and said, You see this little toy? This little toy made a lot of people talk. It'll make you talk as well. And the Rebbe answered very firmly, this little toy can only frighten people that have one world and two gods. Those that have one god and two worlds are not afraid of your little toy. Meaning that those people who have one absolute truth and two worlds, that this physical world is not it. There's a world to come on the spiritual realm and eventually in the physical realm. And that's going to be the eternal life. They're not afraid of this little toy. So once you realize that this is not where life ends, it could be possible that even if God forbid somebody dies, nevertheless this tragedy is also something for the good, which will come later. And then there's people that ask, fine, in certain situations you can close your eyes and perhaps imagine some good coming out of it. But what about an incident like the Holocaust, where six million Jews died in such a terrible way? How can you say that's for the good? In what way could it be for the good? And the answer to that question is not that we can answer and explain how it was for the good and why it was for the good, but one has to realize that this question comes not from an intelligent point. Because once you realize that God is greater than a human being, and his intelligence is greater than a human being. In fact, not just greater, but he's infinitely greater. The distance between God and a human being is the distance between finite and infinite. How far is infinite from finite? Infinite distance. So there's no way we can even expect to understand and to see 
what is going on on an infinite level. And just like on a physical level, if a person will step outside, look up and say, there's nothing there on the moon because I can't see it. Or there's nothing further than the moon because I can't see it. It's not true. Why can't you see it? Because it's thousands and millions of miles away from you. How can you expect to see something which is millions of miles away from you? Then there are things which are in outer space that are not just millions of years away. They're hundreds of light years away. And there's no way in the world you can expect to see it. And if a person says, I don't believe it exists because I can't see it, he'll be left out of the room. How do you expect to see something without special equipment when you're millions of miles away, hundreds of light years away? You can't expect to see what's going on on the stars. Nevertheless, the distance between a hundred light years away and Earth is a finite distance. It's measurable. But because it's so distant, you can't expect to see it. And therefore, when you're dealing with Hashem who's infinite, His intelligence is infinite, just because I can't see it with my mind, that doesn't mean that it's not understood. That all it means is that finite can't reach and can't see infinite. So it's not that you can explain why the Holocaust happened, but we can see that something which is definitely for the good, and there's a good reason and a purpose behind it, to us it's completely inconceivable. There's no way in the world we can fathom what could be the good there. But that is understood because finite cannot see something which is infinitely far away from them, whether it's physically far away or, or in intellectually far away. It's impossible to, un to grasp it. So the basic principle is that everything that happens to a person is coming from God, and God is good, therefore everything that happens is in essence good. The only difference is sometimes that good and that blessing is in an open way that we can see it, and sometimes it's in a disguised way that we can't see it. But that too is in essence good. However, there's still another point that has to be made clear, and that is the question can be asked. When the person suffers a loss or has any kind of damage, which is a result of an act of God, that can be understood. Someone suffers a loss because of a thunderstorm, because of the heat, because of, God forbid, a disease. This is an act of God, and this is definitely good because it's coming from God. But when a person suffers a loss in any form or shape, as a result of another person's evil, how can you say that that is in essence good? The other person had the free choice whether to do the evil or not to do the evil. So the fact that this person is a victim is a result of someone else's free choice. Had he not chosen to do evil, he wouldn't have suffered this loss. So how can we say that his loss is in essence good because it's coming from God? In the case where another person is responsible for his loss. So the answer to that is, once again, that everything that happens to a person is by divine providence, and because God planned it to happen, and the same thing applies to a case where a person suffers a loss as a result of another individual's evil. Had it not been destined for him to suffer this loss, it never would have happened. Which means even though the other person chose to do evil, but had he not been destined to suffer the loss, that person who chose to do evil 
could have never carried out his plan. So if a thief, for example, chooses to steal from another person, the one who lost the money, the fact that he actually lost his money is an indication that this was God's plan. It was destined for him to lose the money. And if this thief would not have chosen to steal, then he would have lost the money some other way. On the other hand, the thief will be punished for his stealing and will be held responsible for it, even though it was destined for this person to lose his money, because the thief did it out of his choice to do evil. He knows nothing of God's plan. His act had nothing to do with God. He did it because he chose to do evil, and that's why he'll be punished, and that's why he'll be held responsible. There's a story brought down in the Mishnah, in the ethics of our fathers, that Hillel once walked by the water, and he saw a skull floating. Evidently, this was the skull of a person who drowned in the water. So Hillel said to the skull, the reason why you drowned was because you drowned someone else. Based on the principle that God punishes a person measure for measure, which means when a person does something which is evil, the punishment is similar to the act of evil that he did. So seeing that this person was drowned, he said it's because he must have drowned someone else. So that's the way God punished him. But then he concluded to this skull, but the one who drowned you, he himself will also be drowned. In other words, it's very clear that the person who drowned the first person did an act of evil, and that's why he was going to be punished to be drowned. Nevertheless, the one who will drown him, even though it was destined for this person to be drowned, the one who will do it will also be drowned. Because he's not doing it because of God's plan, he's doing it because of his choice to do evil. He chose to be a murderer, and that's why he'll be punished. But had it not been destined for this person to be drowned, then his choice would have been there, but he couldn't carry out his plan. So therefore, even when something happens to a person, which is a result of another person's free choice to do evil, it's still the same principle. Had it not been destined for him to suffer the loss, it never would have happened. And that's why even in that case, a person is not allowed to lose his temper, and a person should be besimcha, recognizing that if I had this loss, it was definitely destined, and definitely it is in essence good. Because the good there is in disguise. However, the question is, on the whole concept, true we understand that it's possible that God is doing something which is good, but it's disguised. We can't see it. But why? Why would God give me something good in a disguised way? What would be the purpose behind it? One of the ways this is explained is with the analogy of a father who wants to see how clever his child is, who wants to bring out and develop the intelligence of the child, so he hides from the child. If the child is a foolish child, he begins to cry because he can't find his father. A child who is more intelligent realizes that the father is playing with him, and therefore he starts to look and search for his father until he finds him. So the purpose of the father's hiding 
is not to stay away from the child. He wants the child to find him. He wants to be exposed. But he wants the child to look for him and to find where he's hiding. The same thing with God. That the reason why God disguises himself and hides himself is because he wants us to search for him and find him in the disguise. Find where he's hiding. There's a story told with the Magad of Mizrich that once his son, who was also a very great tzaddik, when he grew up he was called the Malach, the angel, because he was such a holy person. But this story took place when he was still a very young child. And he came running into his father's house crying. His father asked him, why are you crying? And he said, because we were playing a game with our friends. And the way the game is described, even though this is 200 years ago, is very similar to the game we know today, hide and go seek. All his friends were hiding. The person who was it was supposed to look for them. And they're waiting in their hiding places for a long period of time. And he never comes around to look for them. So they come out of the hiding places to find out what went wrong. And they realize that the one who is it isn't even there. And what happened was he played a trick on them. They went into their hiding places. And he, instead of searching for them, went home. And that's why they were crying. When the Magadim is rich heard this, he began to cry. Why was he crying? He said that God has the same complaint. God says, I hide myself from you. But the purpose of my hiding is that you should come and search for me. But instead of searching for me, you just go away and you forget to look. In other words, when a negative thing happens, and a person is broken from it, the reason why he's broken is not because of the negative event. He's broken because he doesn't recognize that God is hiding in it. And the purpose is for him to search and find God which is hiding in this negative event. Like the child who cries because he doesn't realize that his father wants him to find him. But if he would realize that this is God hiding because he wants him to be found, then this wouldn't break him. He would realize that the purpose is to see the good that's in this event. From this analogy, we understand another incredible thing. That not only is Simcha important because it demonstrates the truth, but there's another remarkable thing about Simcha, that when a person is the Simcha, this itself is instrumental that the negative event stops and the good and the blessing comes up to the surface. Why? Using this analogy, when the child searches for his father and he finds where his father is hiding, what happens then? Does the father continue to be hide and to hide? No. He comes out of his hiding place because it's all over. The purpose was for him to find him. So once he finds him, he comes out of the hiding place. The same thing in reference to God and the Jew, that the purpose of God's hiding is, and his being disguised, so we should search for him, and identify him, and find him. So when a person is besimcha, when a person is happy, that's a way of recognizing and declaring that I see that God is in this event, which means he recognizes God who is in disguise. By him recognizing this and identifying God, that causes the mask and the disguise to be eliminated, and God comes out from his hiding, which means in different words that the blessing and the good comes out to the surface, comes out in the open. So this is 
the tremendous quality and greatness of Simcha that it causes the good to come out on the open. And that's why we see with Rabbi Kiva, Lachemish Gamzu, by these people, because they saw so clearly that everything that happens comes from God, and therefore everything is definitely good, and they will be Simcha in their lives immediately after this negative event, the blessing and the good that was hidden there followed very shortly. Why? Because they recognized God and the goodness that's hidden in the skies, that itself was instrumental for the negative to be eliminated and the good to come out on the surface. The only question that remains is why? Why would God disguise himself and why does he want us to search for him? In the case of a father and a child, we can see that this is some form of entertainment. He wants the child to look for him, and this shows how clever the child is. But that's with human beings. In the case of God and the Jew, there's definitely much more depth to the reason why God hides himself, and there's a purpose in us searching for him and finding him in that disguise. What is the purpose of this hiding? And this will be explained, God willing, in the next lesson.